that moment of turning the outcome over to the jury. I have done everything. Everything I can say or do, I feel like I have done, and I am turning it over. I don't get to write the last chapter. You do. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. So uh, I'm uh, really glad to be here today with uh, my friend and uh, uh, longtime collaborator, uh, Mike Trainer. Good to be with you, David. So where I want to start, just for people that, that won't know you, is just a little bit about your story. I know you graduated from law school in uh, the old uh, age of 1982. Why law school for you? You know, I was, I would broadly say I was kind of a problem child <laughs> as a teenager. I didn't really know what I was doing other than, you know, getting in trouble. I was smoking pot every day. And, uh, but, you know, I was smart enough and they, they gave us an opportunity to go to a local college on Saturdays to take a, a I took a pre-law course at 16 years of age. Okay. And the man really just had a passion for the law. Um, and I think that's as probably what I was as attracted to as anything else. I, at 16, what do you know about the law? Um, but I, I, he really did have a passion for it. It, it interested me. And it's, it got me to at least straighten out enough to get out of high school and go to college. But, uh, and I had a good pre-law, prof, pre-law professor um, that really expected a lot. Um, and I think being around people that expect a lot out of you uh, really does change you and in some ways surprised me that what I was capable of and so that I think those were just strong influences that I don't think I would have dreamt it up on my own. I, I feel like I know the story, your story, and yet I feel like I don't, if yeah. that makes any sense. Like yeah. I know at some point you shift from being an attorney to the the stream you're in now, which yeah. is counseling, psychodrama, a consultant to lawyers, but I don't know the exact journey. Can you give us just a little bit of that thread? Yeah, part of it that's important is, you know, my father died young. He died at 51. I was still a teenager. And part of the problem my father had in life was he hated his job. Okay. Um, and I, even as a kid, I just said, you know, I'm just not going to do something I, I, I don't like doing. And I understand, I have a greater understanding as an adult. He was a child of depression and he made some hard choices, but I just didn't want to be that guy that was miserable at work. And I think I imagined what the practice of law was without really knowing what it was. And I also drank too much myself. Um, And when I stopped drinking, um, I really had to start paying attention to my choices and whether it was going to contribute to my happiness or not. When did you stop drinking? What year? I quit drinking in 1986, spring of 86, so 33 years ago. Was it a, a sudden choice or a abrupt choice? It was, it was a temporary choice, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> in my mind. Um, I, was, I was going through a divorce that I started, and I, I went to get some help, and one of the first things they asked me to do was to stop drinking. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll quit for you know three months or six months and get in shape and lose weight and all that kind of self-centered stuff. Those are the reasons I'll yes. stop. But once I stopped, I really found that a lot, a lot of what I had been running away from was now in my face. Hmm. I just had a lot of 
trauma as a kid. There's a lot of unresolved emotional stuff that I had always tried to outrun by being successful. Um, so when I stopped drinking, I just had a lot of grief come up. I had anger that I didn't know I had. Um, and that's really what led me to this particular type of work is how bad it felt to not drink. <laughs> You're like, I, if I'm not going to drink, I need to be in some good. other place. <laughs> right. So did you start down the the journey from law into, would I call it mental health or what would be the right? right? Yeah, certainly personal growth. I, I wasn't really... It certainly was mental health, although I didn't frame it that way for myself. Um, but I came to what is, was called experiential therapy and eventually psychodrama, which is improvisational role playing. I came into that six months sober, six months away from a drink, because I thought I was sort of going out of my mind. I didn't understand why I was so emotional. Um, and parts of my life were actually very good. Um, I had two preschool children. I loved being a dad, but um, there were just things that were in my face emotionally that I needed some relief from. So um, I didn't know what it was, but I did it, and it gave me a tremendous amount of relief. Um, And so I just was attracted to it and did volunteer work. I volunteered with teenagers that were in similar problems with alcohol or drugs and had difficult families that they came from, trauma or abuse, and... The more I volunteered, the more I liked it. Because I, I don't know about you, but I got out of law school and I said, I am never setting foot in the classroom again. Yeah. <laughs> this is yes. it. Yes. Um, so you so, had to go back to school? Yeah, I had to go back to school. Uh, I, I got a, a social work degree, master's in social work, but I had to really you know, debate that for a couple of years before I was willing to, to do it. Leave making a nice living and... and yeah. Yeah, part of it. Yeah, part of it was that uh, that I made a good living, and I had two children to support, so I couldn't just you know pretend I was twenty years old again. Um, but the more I did it, the more I found it was uh, purposeful. It just meant a lot to me, and uh, I didn't know how much I had to offer other people. Truthfully, I just know that you know day by day it seemed to draw me in, and and uh, I think. You know, I think I have been attracted in my life to people that had a passion for what they did. Yes. Um, And uh, I didn't know how that was going to evolve for myself, but that is eventually what happened. Any any insight uh, in the questions that somebody might ask if they're trying to decide? Because what I found is there's a group of lawyers that love practicing law. Okay, they just, they know they're doing what they were made to do. There's a group of lawyers where... They wouldn't love any job. They're just, they, you know, it wouldn't matter what they were doing. They're, they see work as work, and you know that's the way they are. And then there are people that they, they're genuinely discontent practicing law, and they, and they really question, should I be doing this? What if, if I were, a, if I were that person, and I'm not, but if I were that person, what, what would you do to kind of help me make the best decision for myself? Well, I, I know for myself, it was really emphasized to me, look, just don't go, go change a career because you think it's going to make you happy. You, you're going to have to face yourself first. Yes. Uh, and, and just to do your own personal work, look in the mirror, face, you know, face up to what you need to be accountable for. What, what have you done right? What are the mistakes you've made? Um, do that first. Kind of take that internal journey, at least begin that internal journey first, and then figure out. You know, don't make big decisions 
you know, about careers or relationships or other things, face yourself first. And that was important for me because I tended to blame other people for my unhappiness. This was back when, yeah. yes, okay. Um, so to really shift into, you know, this, this, is, this is the life I've created. I mean, I, I remember going to a, a workshop and the guy said, write down the three best things that have happened to you in your life. Write down the three worst things that have happened in your life. And we did that, and then he said, write down next to each one of them whether you feel like you're responsible for them. And five out of the six I felt responsible for, but the the sixth one, my father dying when I was 19, I didn't feel responsible for that. But his point was, you're responsible for all of it because it's really how you interpret what happened to you, what you do with it, okay? the, the meaning you construct out of the good and the bad. Okay. You're responsible for it. So that's I had to be kind of re-educated or, or really develop what I see as like a spiritual foundation of how do you look in the mirror and, and be truthful with yourself? Because if you can't, who, who can you really help? Yeah, seems similar to marriage too. It's like the person who is unhappy in a marriage and then they just want to flip to the other marriage and they're going to be the same person in the next marriage that they were exactly. in the first marriage. Yeah, exactly. I've seen that happen time and time again. Yes, Yeah. yes. Uh, for those that you're uh, a unicorn or something that they're completely unfamiliar with, um, I would love for them to just get a little picture today. Not, I know it's been a journey over a lot of years to kind of get to the role that you fill today. But what what does a typical month professionally look like for you in terms of? what you're currently doing in your career. It, it has been a 180 degree turn, but what I'm currently doing is I, I, I work as a, a psychodrama instructor, and I can explain a little bit more about what that means, uh, working with lawyers who are learning specific trial skills. Um, and then I do consulting work with lawyers and their clients. I do personal growth programs. Um, but all of it is psychodrama, which is improvisational role-playing. Um, so I work in groups of people. I, I do see some people individually as a therapist, but primarily my work is in small groups of people, whether it's the focus of working on a particular case um, or just lawyers that really need to work on their own personal growth and face themselves and uh, uh, you know, kind of get help with their own growth process, uh, yeah. just not outcomes of cases. I, I have uh, had the, um, I want to say privilege, but I don't know that that's the right word. I've had the opportunity to do some personal work with you with a, another group of lawyers, and I've worked with clients, and uh, having brought in lawyers from other firms into those sessions, words like psychodrama, they sound Greek and Latin. They sound like uh, fluffy. They sound non-purposeful. They they sound kumbaya, in, in Zen or something. And it, it, can you kind of explain what's the end game? Okay, we'll go to the process in a minute. But psychodrama and the kind of work you do. What's the end goal of that? No, and I, I think that's important that people see there is a practical thing that we're pursuing here. So for me, improvisational role-playing helps people be more spontaneous, more creative, and more potent as people. 
Now, for us in the work that we do, spontaneity is a new response to an old situation, or it's an adequate response to a new situation. And if you think about so many of the problems that we have in our lives, it's because we keep doing the same thing over and over again. Yeah, every time I go to the doctor for a physical, he says, lose 20 pounds. But I keep doing the same thing over and over again. <laughs> so, no, I have not lost the weight. So it's really, it, it may sound like a simple thing, but really some of that is emotional, what, what gets in the way of us doing, responding in new ways. I love the, the word potent, um, and I'd like to unpack that. When sure. you say it makes you more potent, I think of, like a, a teenage boy, impotent, which I would say unable to be effective. Right. Well, yes, and in in a broader way than teenage boy concerns, um, it's being potent is the ability to marshal together all of your resources and direct it toward a purpose, okay, mentally, emotionally, physically. So yes, you know we we know lawyers that don't take care of themselves physically. You know this is a job that requires a hell of a lot of stamina. Yeah, okay? and it affects uh, their ability to right, be potent. Right. Um, but things, you know, like choice of language is part of potency. Sometimes you'll talk with somebody, and by the, by the time they're done talking, you don't know what they're talking about because they've been vague or general or, or avoided things or whatever, used euphemisms. And what's this conversation about? You know, so part of potency is how do I be direct with somebody? How do I you know, take charge of my affect, volume of voice, um, choice of words, eye contact, body language, so that people may actually be paying attention when I'm speaking, okay. or I would be more credible. Yes, I find that through the a lot of the techniques and and even the concepts of psychodrama, it, that potency comes from um, being present and authentic in a real way, like like not trying to put on a performance, not trying to uh, gain the approval of my co-counselor or my client, but literally being, like real potency comes from being in the moment and uh, being fully committed to not uh, something outside that is really like me trying to find approval or work through my insecurities, but being just there to do what I'm called to do, which is to tell my client's story. To not have an agenda in that moment. Yes. And a, a huge part of that, it, it applies to everybody, but certainly for lawyers, is if I'm going to be present with you, I have to let go of advice giving. I have to let go of solving your problems in this moment. I have to become a better listener. Sometimes our listening is only for the purpose of advancing our agenda or solving a problem. But if I can just join with somebody and just listen and move into, if I were in their shoes, what I would be feeling, what I might be saying, what I might not be saying, what I may want to support them in, in, in doing, that is a hard thing to do if I were them. Okay, just really trying to be truly empathetic, which means letting go of my plan sometimes and just being with another person. Hmm. Um, to the naysayer who uh, says, what does all this have to do with uh, effective trial work? And, you know, 
have you seen the the process, the psychodramatic process, and um, spontaneity and creativity being utilized? Have you seen it bear results in the courtroom? I have seen it bear results. I and I every week I'm talking to lawyers at, at different stages of, of a case, so right from the beginning of a case through depositions, through preparing witnesses, through jury selection, what happens at trial, what verdicts are. Um, and just, you know, again, I try to be a good listener for them uh, and, and just listen to their process and what they've witnessed. And, and many times lawyers are telling me that they're surprised at the level of connection they have felt with their client. Sometimes they have a clear uh, rationale or story for that, but sometimes it is just more um, of a bond. I recently worked with a, a younger lawyer who had never been around this type of work at all, although he knew lawyers that had. And uh, his client's uh, wife died as a result of being untre- being untreated in an emergency room. And he was in the role of the woman that died. And he was with his client, taking her role, and the client was really teaching him how to be his wife, not only in the terrible events of that day, but also what it was like when they got married, what their dating was like, what they had fun doing. So kind of over the course of a day, being in a number of different scenes where, where he played the role of a man's wife and he was taught how to do it, just built a tremendous bond between him and his client. And he had never done this before at all. Yes. I, I, I was thinking of a case we had done just while we're sitting here that if you can remember it, it might help explain what the process. It was the one where uh, our client was in the taxi cab of a tractor trailer and then another tractor trailer comes. There's an explosion and the timing of the explosion mattered. Do you, do you yes, remember I, that? Yes, I do remember it. <laughs> yeah. And, and it was one where, you know, my memory is we, we recreated, in essence, the, the taxi cab in my uh, office lobby. Well, it was a truck cab. Yes. It was a truck cab because he was driving a, a, yes. a, a tractor trailer. He was asleep in the back and his partner was driving the truck in the front. He was rear-ended. And the the whole truck caught on fire, and it was turned down its side on the highway. Yes. Um, so yes, we we recreated the inside of that truck cab when he didn't know if he was going to be able to get out, and, and the whole truck was in flames. Yes, and and I remember. So we each played different roles yeah. of all of the different things, but the number one thing I remember about it was a story which had always the timing had always been vague in the way the client told the story after they had literally relived the story piece by piece in an active way now he could passionately and potently tell the truth yes well when the body is in motion when we're physically recreating something it can be something as simple as preparing a meal or something as life-threatening as being in the cab of a truck that's on fire when you really just step by step have somebody take you through it and they're in their own body going through that, memories come back, more specific things. And, and I don't think we exactly got the sequence of how he was saved, but two good Samaritans ran over to this truck that was on fire and pulled him and his partner yes. out of it. 
and it was just so affecting because yes. up until that moment he thought he was going to die inside of that truck and he struggled with emoting because yes. he was from a he was an immigrant yes really brought up to not feel yes. uh, as many emotions it's be effective make good with the opportunity and therefore we were worried even in a, a serious burn case how we could tell the story yeah. but he was able to get in touch through that yeah and we and part of it was he really built some trust in us yes. he was I, I do remember him very well he was a shy man um, and uh, it was hard to get him to talk in anything other than kind of a flat monotone. Um, and just in talking about different things, if you remember, he sang in a choir. Yes. <laughs> in his church. And uh, so I said, well, can you sing a song for us that you sing at church? And he, he wouldn't do that. And I said, come on, I'll sing with you. Now, look, I cannot carry a tune. I, I knew this was not going to sound good. I mean, when good. you stop drinking, your 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 ability to sing greatly went down. Right, exactly. Uh, I can hear my own voice. So, you know, it wasn't that I was going to dazzle him with my voice, but it was more the willingness to be with him and sing. And he started to sing. And, of course, he had such a very powerful voice. And we did that, and I, I think it just helped him get to the next thing, okay, that he was willing to tolerate the discomfort of it. Um, and then things certainly that you didn't know um, emerged. And, and one of the things I remember from that day is um, he was so terribly burned. He was in the hospital. And the first time the bandages were taken off his face and he looked in the mirror and he said, I, I saw a monster. Yeah. Oh, and it was so vulnerable. It was so painful. And to me, it was obvious he'd been carrying that around from the day it happened and I had not said it to anybody. Yes. But, what, and, and, and what that does is it's not just he's able to tell it. It's now I have a better understanding of how to tell his story. Exactly. Because up to that, it was like it was going to be about a burned guy, but without any real understanding of what he had gone through. And we had tried in a narrative fashion, like sitting down, having a conversation. Yeah to pull something out and I was unsuccessful. Even hired experts yeah. to try to get experts to pull it out. Yeah. And, I, and I think it was really, he didn't know he was gonna say it either probably. Yeah. But because over the course of the day we had really built up some trust, he just said the truth. Yeah. That when he, and we had him right in that moment, standing right in, in front of a mirror in the hospital when he took off the bandages. So he was right back at that exact moment. And what came out of his mouth was what had been in his head since that day. And I think we all felt it. We felt the pain and the vulnerability and, and just, you know, the despair of that moment for him. If you can, what, what are uh, some of the ways that lawyers have used the psychodramatic process to help them with their clients? Uh, boy, there's so many things that that go through my head. Um, and sometimes um, it's a struggle for lawyers to feel the connection with their clients. They know they have a you know a viable a viable case. They, they, they know that it's there, but there's there's a missing connection. some Some clients don't trust lawyers or they don't like lawyers or they project onto lawyers a lot of things that you know are just kind of social. Uh, constructs about what a lawyer is. Uh, they project onto them. 
and, and sometimes vice versa that can happen. So I, th I think the more genuine the lawyer can be with their client about everything, you know, what we all have in common is how we deal with our emotional lives. We, we've all been happy or sad or angry or scared or whatever. And the ways we avoid dealing with that are all very similar. Let, let's talk about uh, the counseling work and the personal work that you, you literally, I know, you travel around the country uh, coast to coast, uh, meeting with lawyers, talking with lawyers, having dinner with lawyers, doing personal work with lawyers, counseling lawyers. Uh, what are some of the threads that you see in the lawyers who you look at professionally, we'll start professionally, that are flourishing? They're thriving. I would see that there's some balance between their personal life and their professional life. And I, I would never want to sound like a Pollyanna that uh, any of us perfects it and it just stays that way. I, I mean, I think it's probably a struggle throughout our, our, our lifetime where some people have families, they have kids and, and the practice of law. And um, it's time consuming. It's, it's demanding. What I'm often saying to younger lawyers because they don't know it yet um, is that the legal system is designed to rob you of energy. That's how it's designed. It's set up that way to rob you of energy. You may not notice it at 25 or 30, but at 40 or 45, you're going to notice that. <laughs> so you better find some other ways that work for you of where you're going to get your energy from. Don't go to the practice of law to get it because I don't think you can get it consistently. I'm not saying it's unrewarding uh, practicing law. I'm just saying you need a lot of other stuff. To give you the energy, to give you the, the perspective. How about um, uh, mental health issues? We, I, I read every now and then these posts, a little blurb about uh, how prevalent mental health issues are with lawyers, depression, anxiety, um, what do you see? Well, I, I, I do see that to be true. I think there's, there is something in the practice of law that lawyers have to be quick studies, that you, have, you don't have unlimited amount of time for anything. And you can be faced with some complex problems or complex facts or complex people, and you have to, you have to find a way to figure this out soon. Okay. I mean, when I practiced law, I, I used to say, look, if I only had one thing to do today, I'd do it perfectly. But I got 10 <laughs> things to do today. Yes. Or 20 or, <laughs> or 30. 20. What, yes. So, we're, so I think a lot of it is we're looking for shortcuts. We're looking for how quickly uh, can I get this. Uh, Jim Gaffigan, the, the comedian, lives in New York City. He's got all these kids. And uh, Seinfeld was interviewing him. And he says, sometimes people ask me, where do you get the best cheeseburger in New York City? And he says, I don't care where the best cheeseburger is. I just want to know where the nearest best cheeseburger is. <laughs> <laughs> and that's sort of like the practice of law, too. You need things now. And how that shows up is if I'm feeling stressed, I'm feeling down, I'm disappointed in what's going on in a case or ticked off about something that's happened in court, we're looking for quick ways to relieve it. You know? So what I eat, you know, getting a drink, getting high, you know, sometimes acting out sexually, spending money I don't got. Um, we look for quick ways to get relief. Okay, so I think that's the challenge is, you know, yeah, time and attention. Uh, 
you just you just somebody's listening to this you just got in their grill they're like why do you have to say that out loud well we all know it we all observe it in one another and sometimes we even can observe it in ourselves but think we don't have a choice because I, I only got so much time and I, I think when you suggest something to people the first thing they think is that's going to take too much time yeah I could go to the gym three times this week but where, where am I going to find the time to go to the gym three times this week so so to ask the question I really want the answer let's assume for someone who they can relate to the concept of they feel stressors they're looking for the instant relief and they go to drugs alcohol pornography spending money whatever those things that they don't have they're going for that kind of instant relief but they still they want to get out of that that rut or that circle but they're looking to get there quickly. They're not looking for a long, you know, 10-week inpatient treatment center. They're looking to take a positive step in the right direction with maybe a second and a third step laid out. Well, I'll mention some things knowing I'm sure there's things that I, that I would be sure. leaving out too. Um, but how we start our day is tremendously important. Uh, people in the field of positive psychology, they do research, and the research shows a negative thought is way more powerful than a positive thought. So if my first waking thoughts are everything that didn't get done yesterday, okay, everything that probably should be done today, and I don't know if I can get to it, and I start going to the negativity, you know, um, then it's very hard to get out of that. So I think how you begin your day, I mean, I, I think our lives require some type of spiritual foundation that looks very different for different people. Um, but I, I think really focusing on where am I going to get some positive energy? What's, what's my conscious intent for this day? So, so let's, let's start. What are some of the, for lack of a better phrase, morning rituals or morning habits that people that you look at that you think these are healthy? You know what I'm saying? They're they're living a, a, a healthy, thriving life. What do you see? Things as simple as going and taking a walk for half an hour, 45 minutes, having some inspirational literature that they, they read with a cup of coffee, prayer, meditation, yoga. I never thought I'd be a guy that would practice yoga. I had a few injuries when I was about 50 years old. And I had to start. I didn't have to. I chose to start doing that. Um, and one of the things I noticed about yoga is how much it helped my mood like immediately. And, and the advantage of it is if you've got 15 minutes, you can do yoga for 15 minutes. If you've got an hour, you can do it for an hour. But you don't have to be a great athlete or in superb condition. There's some entry point for you. And I, I do think the body in motion, whatever it may be, affects our mood. It affects our, our kind of mental attitudes and how we process things. If all we are is, is living from the neck up, okay, then we're, we're living in a state of anxiety um, if we're not in our bodies and, and just being, what does my body need? to? And so and things like massage or dance or, or you know, fun things, comedy. <laughs> is there comedy in your life? Are you around people that have a sense of humor? <laughs> yes. Those are, those are pra- they seem... Uh, non-practical, but yet they really are practical. We all like being around somebody that can make us laugh out yeah. loud. Yeah. Can I have lunch this week 
with somebody that I know will have some laughs. Yes. Okay. And my schedule says you don't have time for lunch, but am I willing to make it? Okay. So we're, you know, if if you want to ch- get out of your head, we we have to engage our other senses with something. Yeah, it's crazy you're saying this. So this morning I'm taking my daughter to school. Um, my youngest daughter is 13, and we're listening to Taylor Swift's new album, Dancing. I am out of my head, okay? I was filled with joy and optimism and hope, and it was mindless, but it was it was the the sound of the beboping music, the the visualization of my daughter dancing in her seat, uh, filled with joy. Uh, ten minutes that have frankly fueled my whole day. It was just really an article about moms that are not trying to be fashion models or anything, just trying to be real and have some laughs or engage or whatever and but it's physical activity and it's music and it's just it's just for fun uh, and it's simple you know it's not going to take you all day um, so we, we are way, way more than our parents generation our grandparents generation we have way more choices about ways to engage and, and get some energy that's not related to just our career yeah you know. that's really good it's it's I have uh, in some of my I, I can struggle with some I, I hate to call it depression because I don't think it's clinical, but some I'll have times where I feel depressed and it's not circumstance related. And I've had people that have you know tried to encourage me in those times. Sometimes hearing someone else's words just don't help. But I uh, years ago I had someone say, why don't you just every night before you go to bed, write down five things that you're feeling grateful for. And then when you wake up first thing in the morning, find, you know, two that you're feeling grateful for. And I did it for a season. Found it very helpful. Yeah. Well, in part of what it's doing is instructing us that we're really in charge of what we think. We're make we are able to make a choice. Sometimes we think what's passing through our mind we got no control over. Yes. When really we we do. And I, I, I think an important question for all of us to be asking, is this line of thinking serve me in some way or serve the people I care about? Yeah, the phrase I used on that for a season, I said, curate what's going on in your brain. Let me, let me get uh, a little personal. What, I, I, I have found that people tend to learn how people walk through failure oftentimes more than just the successes because I know I would I would look at your career right now and say you're thriving I mean you have a nationwide practice to great trial lawyers helping the clients serving the, the lawyers it seems like it's thriving um, you're in relationship with your kids it seems like it's thriving but I know knowing you it hasn't always been like that and it's been hard what's been the hardest things you've gone through in terms of failure and how did you walk through it? Well, I, back to what you pointed out about relationships, I think when I think of failure, that's the first thing I, I think of is relationships I failed in. Um, so I, I always had a combative, difficult relationship with my father, and he died when I was 19. And I have some empathy for myself uh, of still being a teenager, but. I felt like that was a failure to connect with with the man that's very important to me and thank goodness I have really gotten an understanding and a perspective on him 
through my life, but that was a failure. Failing at marriage. I mean, I, I had no idea. I mean, I had no idea what marriage really was, you know. And uh, so I have regrets about going into it, you know, I would almost say in a state of dishonesty. <laughs> you know, I just wasn't honest with myself, let alone my, my partner. So um, I, I definitely think about marriage failing as just the you know, biggest regret and, and a sense of responsibility about that. How, how have you found uh, peace or at least a way to see those things in a resourceful way? Well, when I really can identify the behaviors that were so harmful, you know, starting with just being self-centered or avoidant or you know, uh, not available, then it's where am I changing that today in my life? In the relationships, my primary relationship with a woman or with my own kids um, who are you know, well into their adulthood. So I, I think it is, yeah, you, you admit what you've done, you you can apologize where apology is appropriate, necessary, but then the real change is how am I changing the behaviors? So I, I do see a lot of behaviors I did to, you know, self gratification or whatever. I don't really need them to be happy. You know, the things I need are pretty simple, um, and I, I do really benefit from trying to be a giving person in my relationships and caring about people, um, and not needing to control them or. Uh, uh, get them to be somebody they're not. So I think that's where I feel some satisfaction as I as I get older. Of just who am I caring about today? Who am I connecting with? And and that's that's what I see is what I've learned from the failure in in relationships. And when I when I think you know professionally, I, I you know of course lost some cases as a as a lawyer. I had some successes and. Uh, you know the the gut punch of uh, losing a case and and just learning that I can live through that. Yes, it really it it didn't destroy me. You know, uh, I didn't get the outcome I wanted. I, I had to kind of. We all had to find a way to separate. And I think practicing law first helped me as a therapist therapist because I've worked with people that are suicidal. I've worked with self destructive people. Worked with people with enormous problems. And what I've come to is that I, I just owe people honesty and support um, and not to take on things that I can't control. You know, um, but I, what I, if I've been honest with you at the end of the day, then I can let go of the outcomes. Um, and it's not that I don't want the best outcomes for people. It's just I'm not in charge of them. Yeah. I think the people that... Uh struggle to engage in the courtroom like they're doing everything they possibly can to avoid having to go to a jury are people that have the illusion that they're going to control the outcome so therefore failure to them is paralyzing yeah yes but but people that are saying i'm going to give absolutely everything i possibly have but i don't i don't write the i don't write the the numbers on a verdict form, I don't, I don't control that, tend to be uh, less afraid and, in my opinion, more effective as a successful advocate. Yes, and a, a number of lawyers that 
I really admire have talked about that decision, that moment of turning the outcome over to the jury. I have done everything. Everything I can say or do, I feel like I have done, and I am turning it over. I don't get to write the last chapter of this story. You do. And, and that, of course, at times can be terrifying. Or <laughs> it's always <laughs> terrifying. But. Um, but to really, I think, just have the humility to recognize I'm done now. Yeah. I have literally done everything that I can do. And I do remember that as being the, the most excruciating part of a trial is when I sat down for the last time and couldn't talk anymore. Yes. <laughs> mine, I, mine, mine is when you hear... And they're back with the verdict that moment, that feeling of when you hear the knock, knock, knock. I, I, it does something inside of me. I would pay almost any amount of money to not have to experience that. It's very scary. Yes. This season of your life, what does a win look like? So, so when I come to work every day, I try to figure out what does a win look like today. For you, when you're consulting on a case... What does a win look like? People do not believe that what I do is going to help them, is going to work for them. It, it, it sounds like some weirdo experience. Um, so what a win looks like for me is just in, in really simple, practical ways to show them, not just talk about it. I really try to limit what I say. I, I really try to just move them into some action quickly and um, as they go through their day, um, they feel supported emotionally. If they feel understood in their experience. And they feel like people are on their side. And you can intellectually know people are on your side. Okay? The logic tells you that. But to really feel it, you know, to move from a place of apprehension or distrust or, or um, just guardedness, sometimes without even really thinking it. So... Uh, the woman that uh, uh, I date often worries about me that I'm around too much trauma um, but I try to explain to her you know at the end of the day people feel better it doesn't mean their case is over it doesn't even mean they're going to win their case but it means they feel more connected to the group usually six, eight, ten people together for a day or maybe two days um, they feel understood and connected within the group and they've also learned a lot about one another. All the focus isn't on the, the client. It's really the group of people that happens to be there that day. So um, when we discover connections that we have, we, we, we feel um, understood. I feel a tremendous satisfaction. And I, I, I like my job better than I like your job because it's fairly immediate. Like, you, you got a real delayed gratification challenge in your job. <laughs> um, you don't know when this is getting settled or resolved or tried or what the outcome's going to be. But I, for me, it's more of an immediate thing that I really see people being helped in that day, including the lawyers. I, I, I find I don't, it doesn't have to be delayed. It's just what I use as the measuring stick for a win. Yeah. So for me, I can, I can go to something which is not going to technically advance a case but if if i leave let's just take a psychodrama if i leave that psychodrama and there is forward momentum in my relationship with a client that's a win and and i and that's Absolutely. gratification it or candidly i was thinking of another one i remember leaving a psychodrama with you where i'm like i can never try this case 
That happens. I literally, literally, and a friend of mine who came there, a very experienced lawyer, looks at me and says, Dave, there's zero chance you can ever try this case. It was a win. I had clarity. I had a piece of data that was valuable. So I find the more I, I, I define the win on, on a smaller things, the easier it is because I like feeling successful. Yeah, and I, what I would hear in that is part of it's facing the truth, not which, which you want to have happen, but sometimes what is the real truth? I was just having this conversation with another lawyer this morning that he really felt helped in a case because at the end of the day, his client had such a chip on his shoulder that he nothing could knock it off. And he would be such a turnoff to the jury that no matter what we did, um, he was not going to be a likable client. And that, that's, I know that may sound like a mean thing to say, but if that's the truth, the sooner you face the truth, the better. Yes. You know, um, and and we wanted to like him. We wanted a breakthrough. Sure. We wanted some magic moment to happen that bound us all together. But that just wasn't going to happen with this particular man. Yes. Um, so, and that helped the lawyer. Yes. That helped him. Um, for someone that wants to... Uh, learn more they're not ready to spend three weeks out in wyoming with peyote or whatever stuff y'all do i'm kidding but but they're not they they don't want to they're not ready for a big bite of the trial lawyers college and maybe aren't even ready for a regional but they they want to take another step are there any books that is a just kind of gives them a taste videos movies anything that that can spark the concepts you're talking about in a in a non-massive way. Well, um, you you can do a search of YouTube for psychodrama. I'm not a hundred percent sure what you'll find on there. Okay. Um, well, we won't I'm recommend glad. that if we don't well, know what's out there. But I think there's some valuable things. It's okay. just sort of separating the wheat from the chaff. Yes. Uh, if, if anybody wants to contact me, you're free to give them my email, and I you I can, can just say them. it, and that way we'll okay. have it here. So it's. T-R-A-Y-N-O-R-M-R at M-E dot com. Mike Trainer, And I'll give you a list of articles, not reading whole books even, but just what are some articles. There's some very good articles written by lawyers that have used this method in their cases. And that might just be sort of the quickest, best yes. way to, to get an introduction to it. And if people wrote to me, I would send them links or send them a copy or something like that. I ask uh, every person that I've had the chance to talk to uh, two questions. The first is, if you could speak uh, one piece of wisdom to a group of folks that are 25 to 35, what would you speak? Lawyers or just people? You know, it's people, but I'm I, candidly, I'm drawn to lawyers. I, lo I, I, I love lawyers, so, so I'm talking about a group of lawyers. Um, one of the things I love about my job is I, I meet lawyers at the beginning of their career. I meet lawyers that are younger than my children. And I am what I said earlier, I am saying to them, this system is designed to rob you of energy. I'm not being a cynic. That, that's just the hard reality. And please find other things that bring you some happiness and energy and purpose in your life. Because okay? this is going to be demanding. And then I would say, learn to love your clients. Um, and that, that's as true for me that I've had, it wasn't automatic. Um, 
I had to really learn how to how to love people. It's not, how do you do that? How do you how do you learn to? Uh, we'll take this. How do you learn to love the unlovable clients? I think it's to enter their world, okay, without judgment. If I were this person, okay, if I had their upbringing, if I had their experiences, okay, how different would I really be? You know, I, I, I don't really work on many criminal cases. Here and there I do. Um, but I am, you know, uh, I am really impressed with death penalty lawyers that take represent defendants that have done the most horrible things that you can imagine to other human beings and really dive down deep into their lives. And how did this person uh, come to this place? What happened to them, really? You know, just not generalities or conclusions, but really, what happened to them? Um, so I, I do think that we can get there, even recognizing um, this other person probably isn't going to change that much because I find a way to love them. They probably aren't going to change this much. It might change something in me. Um, um, and going back to gratitude, that whatever rough circumstances I've had, I still have had it a heck of a lot better than, than many people I've run across. Um, that, that learning to love your clients is a great, great piece of, of wisdom, in particular for those people that represent individuals, which uh, uh, are the folks on kind of my side of the, the aisle. But candidly, it, it would seem like that would be helpful even on the other side. Yes. Um, as much as I hate giving them anything helpful. <laughs> um, now let's go to a second group of people. Let's say uh, 40 to 50. They're, they've made it uh, through the initial part of their career. They have some level of stability, but they still have a lot of time left in their career. What advice would you give them? Um, again, I have the advantage of talking to a lot of lawyers, some of them roughly my age, some of them you know, older. Um, there's, there's a lawyer who's in his 70s that says, you know, I still want to try three or four cases a year. But he, he and I, I've heard it from others too, that he wants to make a difference in people's lives. What am I doing to really make a difference in people's lives? Is it money? Is that all there is? Um, what are the tougher cases that probably nobody else is going to take? Uh, but, you know, what motivates me? And, I, and of course, I know that's different for different lawyers, but... What is your purpose? And I think we do get to an age, um, we're in the process of raising children, we've already raised them, or maybe people haven't had children, but we get to an age where we get a tremendous amount from being mentors to other people, to, to being of service. Um, and it may be just a kind word and a lunch and a, a list, being a listening platform for a younger person, or it may just be you know offering them uh, a helping hand um, that uh, um, so I, I, I do think who am I helping um, when I am comfortable as you said when th there's enough money or whatever who am I helping who am I going the extra mile for because I, I, I do think that uh, long just long term is, is what brings personal satisfaction in this season uh what are you still learning that like uh, something that is new for you that you're actively? Learning? Well, what worked, 
a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago may not necessarily work today with, with these folks. That um, A mantra that I use for myself is that people need simple things. And the reason I say that is because I have complex thinking. I have decades of experience. I can get into a lot of complex thoughts about what's going on with somebody. But really, what I am better off paying attention to, what are the simple things that they need? And just I'm, I'm, I don't have the answers, but I'm curious about this younger generation. I'm curious about people's, their main contact comes from social media, more isolation in society. Uh, people on juries that are going through withdrawal because we don't let them have their cell phones. <laughs> so, yes. you know, I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of what's happening right now and what worked five years ago or even a year ago. Maybe it's changing. Uh, certainly we're, we're, we're going through a lot of upheaval in the society. How is that affecting people that I come into contact with? You know, be it the lawyers or their clients or witnesses or potential jurors. You know, uh, and although I can't, you know, cure the problems of the world, I think I need to be a witness and know how is this affecting people, um, uh, um, because everybody's sort of taken sides, and there's a lot of people out there that have taken sides against trial lawyers, um, and the more I can do to be an advocate for the people I met, because I, I there's a lot of lawyers I have them up on a pedestal, um, not because of necessarily the verdicts. Okay. But the extra mile that I've seen him go for years, for years, in a difficult case, you know, to fight for this person because they knew it was the right thing to do. You know, and, and people need to hear these stories. Look, I don't know if you swear on this podcast or not, but yeah, plenty of people do. Uh, it's not you know, a rule. It's not a rule. Either way. <laughs> but, I mean, what I was thinking is most of what people see in TV and the movies about the practice of law is bullshit. <laughs> it's just bullshit. You know? So the more, whether I can do it or, or help people do it, really just be an advocate for this. This is a necessary, honorable profession, and, and the society needs us. So that's, in this season, <laughs> what I want to influence people about. Yes. Well, I'm, I'm grateful uh, that you shared today. I really am uh, grateful of uh, the impact you've had on me and uh, personally how I've kind of cast a, a vision for the life I want to live. And I think of particular cases where uh, you've helped me see bigger and differently and more compassionate and more authentic and I really do appreciate the work you're doing I wish you the very best and I hope for people that want to take another step they can connect with you by your email address and uh, they can find you on the web I'm sure somewhere um, where would they find you on the web I don't have a website everything what I do is really what kind of person really doesn't have a website somebody that doesn't want to work 400 days <laughs> yeah. a year somebody that's 62 <laughs> and is like uh, you can find me if you find me uh, I love that I, I, it's I really absolutely a word of mouth love job, that yes uh, well I'll be happy to connect anyone yeah. that wants to but thank to get you it was connected. a great conversation yes. I enjoyed the time with you to do today and uh, have a great holiday you too